0: Oh, good to see everybody here. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that the topic is a very powerful and necessary one for us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will really speak to us and resonate in us so that we may give our lives to you in obedience and to glorify you in everything that we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what is the name of this place? Uh, No, it's not Cherry Hearts Kindergarten, right? It's uh, currently, uh, as we meet here on Sunday, it's Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church, isn't it? Now, what is the function of a church? What does a church exist for? What is the purpose of a church? Now, it's interesting because the last six months, I've actually talked to a few people at various times about church. And I remember a Chinese New Year, another pastor came up to me and said that the members of his congregation felt that church was a place where the people, the members' social, educational, sporting, religious needs were being met. So the church is a place which basically serves itself. Uh, Just last week, I spoke to this guy who uh, is completely non-Christian and he asked me about uh, City Harvest Church, right? And he said, you know, what is the purpose of church? It's church uh, to build up uh, resources and money and prosperity. Some other people might say that church is just a place where we study the Bible, right? We come for Bible study, we listen to sermon. That is what church is about. But actually, there's, there's one thing that uh, people have never ever heard say to me, this is what church is for. And they've never heard someone actually say from their mouth that church exists and make disciples of people to, to reach out and save people, right? But that's actually one of the purposes of our church, because if you t- get your bulletin, right? If you turn to the back of the bulletin, you see a bulletin. You sure received the bulletin, right? At the the back of the bulletin, there is our mission. Okay, do you see the point three of the mission? It says going out with the gospel of Jesus Christ to enable members to share the love of God, proclaim the gospel, and win lives for Him through personal outreach and carrying Ministries. Well, do you know that's why the purpose of our church is? Well, you should, isn't it? Because you get this bulletin every week. But that is the mission statement of our church, isn't it? That we exist to go out and to win people of Christ. Now, someone once said <coughs> that the church is the only organization on earth which exists for people who are yet to become its members. Which is a very profound statement that we exist not for ourselves, but we exist for people who have yet become members of our church. And I think that there are three pictures today that I want to show you very clearly from the Bible, which shows to us that reaching out as individuals and reaching out as a church is not something which is an optional or extra, but it's something which is a fundamental fact of the Christian life. So the first thing I want to ask you is, is God still working today? Is God still working today? If God is still working today, what is God doing? Now, when we look at the Bible... Jesus has finished his work in many ways, right? He's come on earth, he's finished his incarnation, he's died on the cross, he's finished his work on the cross, he's gone up to heaven, he's finished his resurrection from the grave. But there's one thing that Jesus is still doing in the world today, and that is, he is building his church. If you look up here at Matthew chapter 16, look at what happens. This is a very pivotal passage in the Bible, is where Peter, for the very first time, recognizes who Jesus is. And it says here, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, uh, there's some confusion here over what verse 18 means. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Some people say it means that Jesus is going to build his church on the confession of Peter. that Jesus, You know, that Jesus is Christ. Some people say that Jesus is going to build his church on the rock that is himself. Some other people say that he's building his church on Peter himself. And I think the last one is correct. Because Peter, in the original language, means rock. Right? Peter is rock. So what it's actually saying, if you look up here, I, I don't have my laser pointer, I need to get some batteries, but it, says, it basically says, I tell you that you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Right? Or Another way of putting it is, you are Peter, and on this rock, the, the word for rock in the Greek is, you are Peter, and on this Petra, Petra is the word rock, right? You are Peter, and on this Petra, I will build my church. And I think what I, I don't want to really get into all the details of it, but I want you to notice one thing. That Jesus says, I will build my church. It's a future tense. He doesn't say, I have built my church. It doesn't say that the church has been built. It says, I will build my church on Peter. So it's something that happens in the future. And what is happening here is, God is saying that he will build his church using people like Peter, using people like ourselves, using people like you and I, like the Apostles. See, look at this passage here at 1 Corinthians. All right, next slide. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And look at what the Apostle Paul says. Okay? The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I have laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, when you tell someone the gospel, when you plant the seed, when you water the seed, you are building God's church. Now I wonder whether when you look at your life, whether you think you are doing something permanent with your life. Right, think of your own life, what you work as, what you do during the week, what you've been doing over the years. Is there something you're doing in your life which is permanent? Now, I remember when I was working as a, in Hewlett Packard, we used to make computers, right, or handheld devices. And, um, you know, it's like when we make them, they last only about six months and then we have to roll out another product. Not very permanent, isn't it? But I remember speaking to this guy who was the architect of Nian City. You know Nian City where Takashimai is? He was one of the architects of Nian City. I was saying, well, how cool is that, isn't it? Because, you know, you can sort of bring your grandchild through Takashimai one day, you so, see, you know, Gong Gong, uh, help design this building. Well, wow, pretty shook, man. Right? But I want you to reflect on what the Bible is saying because as we help build God's church, we are building something which will last even longer than Nian City because when Jesus comes again and judges the whole world there will not be a neon city but God's church God's people will remain but the, 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 the thing I want to challenge you with today is how many bricks have you contributed to God's building? How much, of a, how much have you actually built in God's great church in this building that He's building? is that because we haven't captured the vision or the dream of being part of God's fellow workers in building His church. There's a sign in uh, my son's bedroom wall, right? Uh, actually, they're not here now, so I can, I can say that. I'm not sure whether it really inspires them, but I put up this sign there. And the sign says, A person of great dreams can achieve great things. A person of no dreams can achieve nothing. I think that's very true, isn't it? A person of great dreams can achieve great things, but if you have no dreams, you can achieve nothing. And I wonder whether for ourselves, we have captured or we feel in us the passion of the dream of wanting to build God's church. I remember when I was younger, I wanted to become a professional tennis player. No? Right? And uh, because I had that dream, I used to go to Kalang Tennis Center, still there, and I used to train... From 12 midday, you know 12 midday how hot it was, to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, without a hat and no sunglasses. And I used to serve 150 balls into each service court, aiming for those little tins. And I used to run these, uh, they call them these, uh, I don't know what they call them now, but they kill you. Basically, you have, to, you have to touch every corner of every part of the tennis court from one side to the other, and come back to the middle every time you touch it, within a certain amount of time. Now, why do you do that? Why would I waste my time right, doing that? Because you have a dream, isn't it? And I think the dream is the same for us too. As we are part of God's people, we must have a dream to want to build God's church, isn't it? Because He is in the process of building His church. But it's not only that. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, which is here, right? Jesus, these are the last words of Jesus as He, as he preaches, as He teaches His disciples. And Jesus says this, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of this age. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of an English lesson, right? Okay? In the English, uh, there's such a word called the imperative. You know what an imperative is? An imperative is a command, it's an instruction. It, it, you know, it's like uh, when you're driving and you see a red, a red uh, color thing on the road, right? Uh, what, what, what is it telling you to do? It's a stop sign, isn't it? It's not a suggestion that you, maybe you should slow down and stop your car. It is a command that you need to stop right there and then, right? You, you can't sort of say, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll consider there's a red sign. No, you just stop. An imperative is that, is that is a verb like that. It's a command that you just obey. So here in this passage, right, in verse 19, what is the imperative in yellow? The imperative verb in this verse is to make Disciples. It is a command of Jesus that we must make disciples. Now, it's not something that we we, we take uh, as a suggestion from Jesus. He's not saying, you know, it's good advice, that you should perhaps follow this if you feel like it. No, he's saying, make disciples. Now, I remember hearing this illustration uh, from this pastor uh, about uh, this cricket game in South Africa. You know, in South Africa, the World Cup soccer is happening very soon. Right, but apparently soccer is not the most popular game in South Africa. In fact, cricket is more popular. You know, you know cricket. Cricket. You see these English people. They're all dressed in white, you know, and they stand out there all day in the sun. And then these they're throwing red balls at each other, and there's this guy, and nothing much happening, right? Okay, that's what happens to cricket. Anyway, this guy was went to a cricket match, and uh, uh, in the front there uh, was a bit of a commotion, right? where there was an old lady talking to an old black man. So the, the pastor said, what's happening? Why is everybody looking there? What's happening? Why is it... Know what's happening? So she went, he went forward to find out what's happening and it turns out that the old black man was none other than Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, is, or was at that time, was the president of South Africa. And as a president, he was just going around meeting people, you know, pressing the flesh. So he went to speak to this old white lady, but she didn't recognize who he was, right? That's why you know she was a bit like, well, "Who's this? What's this black guy talking to me?" So anyway, she found out. Someone said to him, "Look, that's Nelson Mandela, your president." So then, when she found out that he was her president, she tried to get to her feet. Right? She tried to get to her feet, you know. And uh, Nelson Mandela says, "No, no, please sit down. Please sit down." Right? She says, "No, no, I insist. I insist. I must stand up for my president." And this is what Nelson Mandela said. Nelson Mandela said, If I'm your president, then I instruct you not to stand. Sit. So what should she do? She sat down, isn't it? Because her president told her to sit and not stand. Now, Jesus, when he says make disciples, he is not just our president, he is Lord, our Lord and God. And he says to To obey, isn't it? So it says there uh, to make disciples. And there are three other verbs around it, right? These are the three green verbs, uh, what you call uh, participles. Participles are exclamations. Isn't it? Because when we think of go, we think of missionaries, right? You know, like this morning, our, uh, our friends from church, Yang, I mean not Gen, uh, Carlson, Phan, they, they they went. They went to Vietnam. So we think, okay, that's going, right? But it's not going in that sense. Jesus doesn't mean go as you become a missionary and you cross oceans and continents and take planes somewhere. He just means go to where you are with a view of reaching out to people and you notice that the apostles most of them they never left Jerusalem they never and they evangelized them he doesn't mean become a missionary he, he means go to the people around you now the challenge for you and for me is are you going? are you going to your relatives? are you going to your friends? are you going to your classmates? are you going to them and making it's not a it's not an optional it is what Jesus wants you to do um, so, what does he mean? On them, right? What does he mean? Well, I think that what we think of baptism today is very much the idea of, you know, you go to maybe some classes and after some classes, you know, there's a very formal thing where you come out in front of the congregation and we put water on you, Right? But, in the olden days, in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, baptizing happened as soon as you chose to become a Christian. There were no classes, you didn't have to learn about how to become a Presbyterian, right? You didn't have to sign anything, you just got baptized in the nearest water you could find. So again, in Acts chapter 8, right? Acts chapter eight, this slide, right? You see up here, the to asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began to... with that very passage of scripture and told them the good news of Jesus. So, they're having a conversation about Jesus. Uh, verse 32. Then they're traveling along the road. They came to some water, right? Not a special holy water. It was just water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Then he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. See, baptizing here, if you look in the Bible... Is a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Nothing less, nothing more. No classes, right? Nothing to sign. Don't only come up, you know, in front of the whole congregation. It is a decision to accept Jesus. In the New Testament, if you are a Christian, you are baptized, right? There is no sense where you are un- unbaptized Christian, right? It's just when you're when you're Christian, you become baptized. And the challenge for us, I think, is: Are we sharing with people and, and challenging them to make a decision for Jesus. You know, many times, people say, I, I, I will be the salt and light of the world. Right? I'll just live as a Christian. I'll do good things and people can see me. Maybe I'll share a bit of the good news with them. But the hard part is, do you ever stop that with someone and say, are you ready to accept Jesus? Are you ready? Because that's difficult, right? Because that's, that's where you really have to challenge people and say, you know, do you want to become a Christian? It's easy to just, you know, live a good life and just continue to say, oh, you know, I'm a Christian and Christians do good things. But the, the hard part is to say, will you make a decision for Jesus today? Now, the last thing that Jesus says is, uh, next slide, again. So, it's going, baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now what's really important here is we do not just share the message of the salvation of Jesus and give promises 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 right but we also teach people and say look Jesus is God he must be obeyed Now one the promise today is we always say oh no become a christian and you have all these blessings and good news everything's all good news good news good news right but Jesus says here that part of making disciples is to tell people that they must obey that Jesus is not just Savior, Jesus is also Lord. Now this is very important for us today as we look at it because sometimes people look at this passage. Oh, you know, this passage, twelve people. He's just talking to twelve disciples. My name is not uh, uh, Peter. My name is not uh, Matthew. My name is not, uh, you know, uh, Paul. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't have to listen to what Jesus is saying here. Ever heard that before? But look at what Jesus says here. You must teach them to obey everything Jesus taught them. Jesus has taught them that they must make disciples. Therefore, we must also make disciples. Because it's it's part of everything that Jesus taught. You see, my friends, evangelism is not something we do when we have free time, when we feel like it, when we have the gift, or, you know, when it's something that become more mature as Christians. No, evangelism and reaching out is something that happens all the time. Because God is always building His church. And Jesus is always commanding us to make disciples. Now, the last thing I want to look at is the idea of God gathering people. Okay? I don't know whether you know this, but in the whole of the Bible, there's a theme there's a theme of gathering or scattering. Okay, so God gathers people and God scatters people. Now, gathering is good, scattering is bad. Okay? You got it? Gathering is good, scattering is bad. And it starts off right at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, because during the Tower of Babel, when mankind came together to be like God, they wanted to build a tower up to heaven. What did God do? Scattered people in judgment. Do you remember that? Last week when we did the book of Deuteronomy, God gathered His people to go into the promised land. That was good. But then God said, when you guys sin, I will scatter you again. And that was bad. Gathering is good, scattering is bad. And now, while we are living in this earth, we are all scattered. That's bad. But Jesus, when He comes and He dies, He gathers all His people. Now I want you to look at this passage, it's a very, uh, quite a deep passage, but it's very important. This is where the Jewish leaders are deciding whether they should murder Jesus. Uh, then Caiaphas, the, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all, right? You guys are numb nuts, right? You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than let the whole nation perish. Now Caiaphas is not a good guy, right? He's... He's, he's, he's very political, cunning. He's a bit like a mafia boss, okay? okay? Don Caiaphas. Okay? And here they're discussing the fate of Jesus. You know, should we knock him off? Should we kill him? And, and basically he says, yes. Better one man die than for us as a religious establishment. You know, be put at risk. It's a very brutal thing. It's not about justice, it's not about honor, it's not about right or wrong, it's about what is good for the religious establishment. But look at what it says in verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. But not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. See, all the children are scattered. He is going to gather them and bring them together and make them one. So from that day, they, they only plotted to take his life. The death of Jesus actually gathers and saves God's people. Without the death of Jesus, we are all scattered, we are all judged, we are all condemned. Permanently, because of sin. But, God also says in his word, that you and me are involved in gathering God's people together with God. Do you know that? Just as Jesus, his work of gathering still continues today, we work in gathering with Jesus. Now this passage uh, was read to us uh, by Philean and you might be asking yourself, why did Philean read this passage, right? Because what has this passage got to do with evangelism? It's about Satan and Beelzebub and demon possession and all the stuff, right? Where is there in this passage about evangelism? Well, I think it is, and it's very important this passage. See, basically what happened here was that Jesus, he had freed a man from demon possession, right? So the guy's screaming "Oh ah okay, and the demons, you know, gone out. And then the people are saying, you know, Jesus, why did you do this? How what power do you have to do this? Is it because of the power of Satan that you overcame Satan? And Jesus says, No, no, right? It says there in verse seventeen, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But, when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying that he is the strong man by God, the finger of God, right? Not the fist of God, the finger of God, which casts out the power of Satan or Beelzebub. Now the picture one, you know, I'm actually needed to preach to you guys because uh, you're younger, right? You know, thought, you know when you play uh, Counter-Strike or, you know, uh, left for dead, okay, or Call of Duty or whatever, right? It's a picture of that, right? You have this guy, right? With his M16 or I don't know, maybe his uh, RPG guarding his position, and then you come and you take him out, and then you can go in and you know get his guns or whatever and take away his stuff, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, look, it's, G- Satan is like this strong man, but Jesus is a stronger man who defeats him, and it's a very powerful picture in verse 22. He overpowers him. He takes away his armor and he divides up the spoils. Now what are the spoils that Jesus is talking about here? Look at, look at the green part, right? What do you mean divide up the spoils? What is the stuff that Jesus is taking away from Satan? Well, if you look at this passage, he is taking away people, isn't it? He freed a man from demon possession, so he's just taken this man away from the kingdom of Satan. He's taken this soul back from Satan. That's what it means to divide up the the spoils. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, is that he's come into the world to, to defeat Satan so that he can take people back and gather them into his kingdom. Now, that's a really radical picture. You know why? Because when you look around you, right? You look at your non-Christian friends, your family members, your classmates, your workmates. What do they look like? They look exactly like you, right? They don't have any horns growing out from their head, no tail coming out from you know their pants or their skirt. They look exactly like us, isn't it? But if you if you understand what this passage is saying, Jesus is actually saying, well, if, if if Jesus actually hasn't gathered them in and saved them, they are under the power of Satan. And Jesus has come to free them and to gather them into his kingdom. And this is the catch, right? Verse 23 is the catch. He says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. That means that if you're not in the gathering business with Jesus, when Jesus looks at you, He sees you as His enemy. Do you know that? If you are not gathering with Jesus, you are scattering with Satan. That's a very scary thought. And that's what the stakes are, isn't it? Because Jesus says that we are at war here you are either with Jesus gathering or you are with Satan scattering. Right? There's no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland, no Singapore, no Sweden. Right? You are either with Jesus gathering or you are with Satan scattering. Now, when you look at your own life, are you with Jesus gathering and saving people? Or are you with Satan scattering? Because if you are scattering, then you're an enemy of Jesus, isn't it? That's what it says there. I, I'm pretty sure I've read this carefully. Verse 23. It's not very difficult, right? You're either with me or you're against me. You're either gathering or you're scattering. So you can see the stakes. If you don't take making disciples and evangelism seriously, then you are not on the side of Jesus. You are on the side of Satan. So in conclusion, usually in conclusion, no, I always end up a, story or joke or something, right? But today I want to end with a proverb. And this proverb is really interesting because actually uh, I've reflected on this passage for many years and I think that it actually applies in our context to evangelism. Okay, now look at this proverb, chapter 24. And look what it says here. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? That's God, right? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? Now, when you look at this context, the original context is, I presume someone is being led away uh, because of some bad decisions that they've made to death, or they're going to slaughter because they're living the wrong way. And the original context is, you should help them, isn't it? You should stop them. It's like someone's driving a car, runaway car, going down a road, which, you know, ends in a steep cliff. And you say, well, you know, I don't really want to disturb them, you know, they might get a bit angry at me, right? And God says, well, you know, I will judge you for it. Well, I think the same applies to us today, isn't it? If we see our friends, relatives, workmates, classmates, they are going towards death. They are under the power of Satan. They are going to destruction. And we do nothing about it. Then on the last day, when God says to us, Oh, you know, how come you didn't speak to your friend in that cubicle about, about me? And you might say, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. You know, I was just very busy. Like We never got around to it, right? Or, uh, you know, I always thought the Bible, you know, basically, it was only for the twelve disciples, twelve apostles. I'm not an apostle, so it's okay for me. Well, then, what this passage is saying is, those are excuses. They're not reasons, they're just excuses. They're not real reasons before God. But instead, when we look at this passage, it says that as Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, if we believe in Jesus We must do the work that Jesus is doing. And He's building His church, so are we building with Him? He commands His people to make disciples, so are we making disciples? He's in the gathering business, gathering His people into His kingdom. Are we gathering with Him? Let us really examine our lives and consider what God has instructed to us today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that reaching out, making disciples, saving souls, is something that every Christian must do. It is not an optional extra, it is a command that comes from the mouth of your own Son. And help us to see that if we do not gather, we are actually scattering and actually we do not be- belong to your Son at all. Help us to see those are the stakes that are really at large. Help us to have a heart to build your church, to gather your people, and to save people's souls. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.